Hey listeners, David Avalone here with a public service announcement. Given the choices made recently by the top brass at Spotify, we have no choice but to remove this podcast from that service for now. It's a time-consuming process, but if you listen through Spotify, it's likely this will be the last episode on their platform. The good news is we're available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and directly from the Pendant Audio website. All free, all easy to access, and so much better than drinking your own pee. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Pulp Today number 52. I think we're at 52. I always like to start by taking a drink. Today it's a vodka, vodka and soda. I shouldn't be slurring my words already. And today we're going to talk about a book, not an obscure one, called The Lathe of Heaven. Get that cover in there nice. Now this, uh, the, this is the cover from the, the edition based on the, uh, the PBS TV adaptation. That was my, uh, that was my introduction to this, to this book and to Ursula K. Le Guin. Le Guin was a great American science fiction writer in the 20th century, uh, famous for her groundbreaking work, The Left Hand of Darkness, which I highly recommend. It's a, it's a, a very, it's a completely original work, and there's very, there's really nothing else like it. This is more of a science fiction trope, even a fantasy trope, I would say. It's a little bit of the monkey's paw, and it's a little bit Philip K. Dick, who it turns out, in looking it up, I discovered that she was uh, a fan and a friend of Philip K. Dick's, and, and this book was sort of her tribute to him. Rather than tell you what the premise is, I want to read the section where the premise becomes uh, revealed. The opening uh, is set in a, a somewhat familiar, somewhat unfamiliar dystopian future. A young man named George Orr, not George Orwell, but George Orr, is, uh, experiences what may be a drug overdose, maybe a suicide attempt. In any case, he is, he is brought into the custody of a psychiatrist named Dr. Haber. Psychiatrist or psychologist? I'm not, I always, psychiatrist. And Dr. William Haber turns out to be sort of a fascinating character and maybe the worst person in the world for him to meet. He begins by trying to dig in and find out why George Orr took all these drugs and why he may or may not have attempted suicide. Now you're no alcoholic and not dead, so I know that whatever you've taken to suppress your dreams, it worked only partially. Therefore, A, you're in poor shape physically from partial dream deprivation, and B, you've been trying to go up a blind alley. Now, what started you up a blind alley? A fear of dreams, of bad dreams, I take it? Or what you consider to be bad dreams? Can you tell me anything about these dreams? Or hesitated. Haber opened his mouth and shut it again. So often he knew what his patients were going to say and could say it for them better than they could say it themselves. But it was their taking the step that counted. He could not take it for them. After all, this talking was a mere preliminary, a vestigial rite from the palmy days of analysis. Its only function was to help him decide how he should help the patient, whether positive or negative conditioning was indicated, what he should do. I don't have nightmares more than most people, I think, Orr was saying, looking down at his hands. Nothing special. I'm afraid of dreaming. 
of dreaming bad dreams. Any dreams. I see. Have you any notion of how that fear got started? Or what it is you're afraid of? Wish to avoid? Azor did not reply at once, but sat looking down at his hands, square reddish hands, lying too still on his knee. Haber prompted just a little. Is it the irrationality, the lawlessness, sometimes the immorality of dreams? Is it something like that that makes you uncomfortable? Yes, in a way. But for a specific reason. You see, here... Here I... Here's the crux, the lock, thought Haber, also watching those tense hands. Poor bastard. He has wet dreams and a guilt complex about him. Boyhood and neurosis, compulsive mother. Here's where you stop believing me. The little fellow was sicker than he looked. A man who deals with dreams, both awake and sleeping, isn't too concerned with belief and disbelief, Mr. Orr. They're not categories I use much. They don't apply. So ignore that and go on. I'm interested. Did that sound patronizing? He looked at Orr to see if the statement had been taken amiss or met for one instant the man's eyes. Extraordinarily beautiful eyes, Haber thought, and was surprised by the word. For beauty was not a category he used much either. The irises were blue or gray, very clear, as if transparent. For a moment, Haber forgot himself and stared back at those clear, elusive eyes, but only for a moment, so that the strangeness of the experience scarcely registered on his conscious mind. Well, Orr said, speaking with some determination, I have dreams that, that affected the non-dream world, the real world. We all have, Mr. Orr. Or stared, the perfect straight man. The effect of the dreams of the just pre-waking D-state on the general emotional level of the psyche can be... But the straight man interrupted him. No, I didn't. I don't mean that. And stuttering a little. What, I'm, what I mean is I dreamed something and it came true. That isn't hard to believe, Mr. Orr. I'm quite serious in saying that. It's only since the rise of scientific thought that anybody much has been inclined even to question such a statement, much less disbelieve it. Prophetic, not prophetic dreams. I can't foresee anything. I simply change things. The hands were clenched tight. No wonder the med school bigwigs sent this one here. They always sent the nuts they couldn't crack to Haber. Can you give me an example? For instance, can you recall the very first time you had such a dream? How old were you? The patient hesitated a long time and finally said, 16, I think. His manner was still docile. He showed considerable fear of the subject, but no defensiveness or hostility towards Haber. I'm not sure. Tell me about the first time you're sure of. I was 17. I was still living at home and my mother's sister was staying with us. She was getting divorced and wasn't working just getting basic support. She was kind of in the way. It was a regular three-room flat, and she was always there. Drove my mother up the wall. She wasn't considerate. Aunt Ethel, I mean. Hogged bathroom. We still had a private bathroom in that flat. And she kept, oh, making a sort of joking play for me. Half joking. Coming into my bedroom in her topless pajamas and so on. She was only about 30. It got me kind of uptight. I didn't have a girl yet, and, you know... 
adolescence. It's easy to get a kid worked up. I resented it. I mean, she was my aunt. He glanced at Haber to make sure that the doctor knew what he had resented and did not disapprove of his resentment. The insistent permissiveness of the late 20th century had produced fully as much sex guilt and sex fear in its heirs as had the insistent repressiveness of the late 19th century. Orr was afraid that Haber might be shocked at his not wanting to go to bed with his aunt. Haber maintained his non-committal but interested expression. Orr plowed on. Well, I had a lot of sort of anxiety dreams, and this aunt was always in them, usually disguised the way people are in dreams sometimes. Once she was a white cat but I knew that was Ethel, too. Anyhow, finally one night when she'd got me to take her to the movies, tried to get me to handle her, and then when we got home, she kept flopping around on my bed and saying how my parents were asleep and so on. Well, I finally got her out of my room and got to sleep. I had this dream. A very vivid one. I could recall it completely when I woke up. I dreamed that Ethel had been killed in a car crash in Los Angeles, and the telegram had come. My mother was crying while she was trying to cook dinner, and I felt sorry for her and kept wishing I could do something for her, but I didn't know what to do. That was all. Only when I got up, I went into the living room. No Ethel on the couch. There wasn't anybody else in the apartment, just my parents and me. She wasn't there. She never had been there. I didn't have to ask. I remembered. I knew that Aunt Ethel had been killed in a crash on a Los Angeles freeway six weeks ago, coming home after seeing a lawyer about getting a divorce. We had got the news by telegram. The whole dream was just sort of reliving something like what had actually happened. Only it hadn't happened. Until the dream, I mean. I also knew that she'd been living with us, sleeping on the couch in the living room, until last night. But there was nothing to show that, to prove it. No, nothing. She hadn't been. Nobody remembered that she had been except me, and I was wrong now. Haber nodded judiciously and stroked his beard. What had seemed a mild drug habituation case now appeared to be a severe aberration. But he had never had a delusion system presented to him quite so straightforwardly. Or it might be an intelligent schizophrenic feeding him a line, putting him on, with schizoid inventiveness and deviousness, but he lacked the faint inward arrogance of such people, to which Haber was extremely sensitive. Why do you think your mother didn't notice that reality had changed since last night? Well, she didn't dream it. I mean, the dream really did change reality. It made a different reality retroactively, which she had been part of all along. Being in it, she had no memory of the other. I did. I remembered both because I was there, there at the moment of change. This is the only way I can explain it. I know it doesn't make sense, but I've got to have some explanation or face the fact that I'm insane. That is the beginning of the premise of The Lathe of Heaven. George Orr has dreams that change reality. And of course, I mentioned the monkey's paw earlier. When he, the psychiatrist decides to try and use this power once he believes in it, and of course the results of trying to direct changes in reality are disastrous. The connection to the work of Philip K. Dick is obvious with the, the preoccupation with the nature of reality and the nature of dreams and the, 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 the way reality depends on one's perspective and one's uh, outlook, for want of a better word. I, as I said, I, I first encountered it as a TV movie done by PBS in 1980. I would have been 15 years old. And uh, then I 
ran out and got myself a copy of this book, probably this very same paperback, I would guess. There was another TV movie in 2000-something. Uh, the less said about that, the better. But Ursula K. Le Guin was very fond of the PBS drama version of it, which, as I said, was, uh, was very faithful. One thing worth mentioning, what is the title, where does the title come from? It's a, uh, a quote from Chuang Tse, I think it's from the I Ching. Those whom heaven helps, we call the sons of heaven. They do not learn this by learning. They do not work it by working. They do not reason it by using reason. To let understanding stop at what cannot be understood is a high attainment. Those who cannot do it will be destroyed on the lathe of heaven. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Shakespeare. Who, is it Shakespeare whom the gods would destroy they would first make mad? Ironically, after the book was published, she was uh, contacted by a... Uh, a scholar, a Chinese scholar who said, uh, I should say a scholar of Chinese literature, who said, that's actually a terrible translation since lathes did not exist at the time uh, that the, the piece was written. But still, <laughs> there, that's an aspect, that's an interesting aspect of translations like the, uh, like the Burton translation of the Rubiata of Omar Khayyam. Sometimes a terrible translation creates a a third thing, a new thing, a new work of art. But that's the lathe of heaven. Uh, the book is fantastic. It's it's a roller coaster. It's entertaining, uh, while also being thoughtful, as you can tell from the prose there. Uh, Le Guin's a terrific writer, and I I uh, I've never read anything of hers I didn't like. Uh, that's today's endorsement from Pulp Today. See you on the next exciting episode, kids. For more information, visit pendantaudio.com. Thanks for listening.